The following was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. This is the United Podcast Network. The following program is closed captioned for the thinking impaired. By tomorrow, I will rule the world! <laughs> Trying to get everything posted before we actually talk today at Sullivan. I've got confidence. Yeah. Paul looks a little different today, though, doesn't he? Hey, how you guys doing? Tom Duggan here on the Paying Attention Podcast. Wow. Wow. We left the show last week, and my plan was to go into Boston for a fundraiser. And I got halfway back to the office, and uh, we heard that there was an explosion on Chickering Road, and I was debating on whether or not to go to that. So I really had to be into Boston for something. And I said, you know what I'll do? I'll go to that. I'll spend a couple minutes taking pictures. And, and then I'll head into Boston. I never got to Boston. We got to Chickering Road. And um, as everybody knows, if you've been following CNN or local news, uh, the gas explosions in the city of Lawrence. Um, I'm going to get to our guest in a second. But I just want to take a couple of minutes to thank our first responders. My God, what these guys went through. I have to tell you, I consider myself a pretty tough guy, but as I was in my car with the scanner uh, listening to the panic in the firefighters' voices as they were calling out their 30th fire and 37th fire and 40th fire and 60th fire and hearing calls of firefighters down, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it, Uh, listening to the calls of firefighters that went down that had to be pulled out of buildings. Um, it, 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 I was moved to tears. I was really scared for these guys. I know it, almost every single one of them, not just the Lawrence firefighters, but the Methuen and the Havel guys that came in, the Andover and North Andover guys that came in. Um, it, was, it was probably the worst disaster I've seen in my lifetime in the Merrimack Valley. And everybody, the dispatchers, the EMTs, the auxiliary cops that were directing traffic, every single one of their lives were at risk. Um, there were gas leaks, and there were people walking around smoking cigarettes. Um, you know, you have, you have people that had open flames in their homes, and when the gas leak backed up, blew their houses up. Um, I think, I don't know what the official count was, but I think my official count was somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 to 75 house fires that happened because of these gas explosions. And um, it, it, was, it was very harrowing. It was, it was really bizarre to be living through it and to be driving from house to house um, and I also want to thank the state police and all the all these uh, state officials that came in, because after they basically declared martial law in South Lawrence and closed off the entire section of the city, turned off all the power and evacuated an entire like Lawrence is divided into two parts. The river runs between Lawrence and you got South Lawrence and North Lawrence. All of South Lawrence had no power. The entire half of the city was out, and uh, the state police was nice enough because we're the local media guys to let us into the zone. And so we went live on Facebook. The videos are still up. And we drove around Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night in complete darkness in South Lawrence. And it was, it was like a war zone, Chief. I mean, it I was, was there. I was it, there. It was, it was like night of the living dead. Like you watch The uh, Walking Dead, and they show like towns that used to, like Atlanta, but it's all like in rubble. and yeah. That's what it felt like. And every once in a while, we'd pull up. Like, we pulled up to Springfield Street, and there was a bunch of guys sitting outside with a grill. And they were grilling food because they couldn't go inside, and they were hungry, but they didn't want to evacuate. Um, And they're just sitting there grilling like it's nothing, like nothing's going on. Uh, And there was a family over on Blanchard Street that decided not to leave, and they popped up on our live feed and asked us to come over and say hi, and we did. Um, it 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 was bizarre. And I mean, there were a lot of great stories also out of this. I will tell you from... From my perspective... Haverhill Police Chief Alan Denaro, I'm sorry, I didn't give you a proper right. introduction, That's but okay. jump on in. Um, it was probably one of the best coordinated responses to an emergency I've seen in 41 years. I wow. Mean, we had multiple jurisdictions coming in, not only on the fire side, but the police side and the EMS side. And it, it was done properly. It was, it was delegated right. The three chiefs that were involved, the hometown chiefs, um, accepted the assistance from the other chiefs and... and 
things went fantastic. We also had groups like St. Alfio's who stayed open and were cooking food for first responders. Mm-hmm. They had showers available. So the, you know, the community kind of got together to help each other and, you know, worked out really well. We're really pleased from, from my perspective, kind of looking in as an outsider with the way the whole thing meshed together as far as getting past this, this horrible event and, and making it safe for people to come back as quickly as possible. What was most bizarre out of all of it, and, and we'll, be, we'll be telling stories about this forever because there's so many great stories to tell, but what was most bizarre of all of it is with everything that happened, 70-plus houses are blowing up or being on fire, hundreds of firefighters in the city rushing from scene to scene, one death. Can you imagine that? One death. And that, I think, is a testament to our first responders. I think it's also a testament to the people of Lawrence who, in most cases, they tell you to evacuate, and most people, they kind of don't. They, some of them do, but they take their time. They don't really think it's a big thing. In this case, people really grabbed their stuff and ran. And they listen to the first responders. Normally, I'm watching first responders yell at people. Hey, listen, don't go back into your house. I didn't see any of that. People were listening. And afterwards, the response of the surrounding communities and the nonprofits and the off-duty law enforcement officers and public safety officials, firefighters and police that pitched in to help with donating items and coordinating where the items should go and, um, you know, people donating uh, uh, mill space where people could bring these items to, the Senior Center, House of Mercy, guys like Joe Zingales at Century 21 were out there, you know, getting donations from people and then personally delivering them himself. Uh, Laborers Union Local 175, they've got a couple thousand members. Every single one of them were out there helping and none of them were getting paid. I think one of the biggest things was that there was so much uncertainty with this event with the three cities where it happened and you didn't know if it was going to happen again and where it was going to happen. So I think that also kind of made people realize the urgency in in getting out of what could have been a dangerous area Mm -hmm. to safety. So it it really, you know, kind of sped things along as far as getting people to safe locations. Yeah. And so we were were trying to report every every report that came over the scanner of a gas leak or a gas explosion, we reported it right away. And, of course, there's always the haters out there that are coming on the page saying, why don't you wait till it's confirmed? This is irresponsible. You're creating panic. Well, maybe we're creating panic. But the fact is, if we report that there's a gas explosion or a gas leak and we don't wait to get it confirmed, people will get out. People will see that address and they'll get out, as happened with the Charlton family, who were nice enough to come on the Valley Patriot page and say, don't listen to the haters. Keep doing what you're doing. My daughter was in her house. I saw you post something about an address. I knew it was the address next door to my daughter. I told her to get, called her up, told her to get out. She got out. The house next door exploded. She'd be dead right now if we hadn't listened to you. So, you know, the, the, everybody wants the Monday morning quarterback. I'm sure as a cop, you get that all the time, right? All the time. But people really need to sit back and relax and realize that, that uh, the media, the first responders, the people who are involved in these kinds of things at the firsthand level, we actually know what we're doing. And we don't need amateurs who come in Monday morning and try and tell us how, how we could do our jobs better or more responsible because that doesn't make it easier for us to do our jobs. It Sometimes makes it harder. they don't understand what the media's responsibility is. Right, right. No, I agree. So sitting here with us today is um, Hayro Police Chief Alan DeNaro. Uh, he was on our very first show with the other three chiefs, North Andover, uh, Methuen, and Lawrence. And uh, you said something back then that we've continued to repeat and talk about on every, almost every show since, and I want to talk about that in a minute. Um, but before we do, um, you don't mind jumping into like a, a, a national story and kind of making it local for a minute? No. So we're watching this Brett Kavanaugh thing, and somebody comes out of the woodwork from 38 years ago with an accusation that something happened. And I know you guys are hiring right now because I have a friend that applied. And I started to think, you know what, I'm going to ask Chief Denaro. How would you handle that as a police chief? If you're hiring a a group of cops and you're doing all these background checks on them and you're about ready to make your appointment, you're you're pretty much done, and somebody comes out of the woodwork with an accusation that's 38 years old uh, of the magnitude that Kavanaugh is being being accused of, how as a police chief do you handle that? Like, I know it's not the Supreme Court, but I think there's a parallel there. I mean, well, it wouldn't be the same because we can't even hire you if you're over 32. Okay. So, I mean, that it would have to be a much tighter frame. But if there was no reports done, there was no investigation done, uh, there were no arrests, there was no prosecution, civil service wouldn't even let us use that as a bypass reason. Really? 
So, yeah, I mean, and, and the way I believe under uh, Governor Patrick is that they've now limited the quarries to, I believe, 10 years, and then things drop off, and they can't be used. So it's significantly different than it was 20, 30 years ago mm -hmm. in the hiring process. But, you know, in regard to a national story like this, you know, to go back 38 years when there was never a report taken and, and there was nothing done, and obviously the facts get cloudy after a while, and it, it's very difficult to to actually take something like that and say, yeah, we're going to go ahead and prosecute. First of all, you can't even prosecute for that. It's right. so old. So it's it's something that, you know, as far as in, in law enforcement, it was something that would be, if they came into the station tomorrow, it would be uninvestigatable for us. Right. What always bothers me about that kind of stuff is you hear these talking heads on, on TV saying things like, well, she told her best friend at the time, and her best friend comes forward and says, yeah, she told me at the time. I know, I know habitual liars that will make up a story tomorrow and then tell all of their friends and everyone in their universe for a week about it. 30 years later, does that actually mean that it happened? I don't think it, that, that means that it happened. As a law enforcement guy, you understand that. Right? I mean, he's a, I believe he's already sitting on a federal bench. I mean, I don't think it's ever come up before. Right. I mean, he had to be appointed in other stages if, if this was something that was so pressing. Why would you wait until it's a Supreme Court nomination? Mm -hmm. The other benches that he were on are, are equally important to the people. Right. Why, why wait for now? Yeah, it's a little bizarre. But I, I wanted to get your perspective as, as a law enforcement officer because I, I know as a chief you're, you're hiring right now. Um, talk to us about what, it, what, is, what does the Haverhill Department look for in, in uh, an incoming cop? Like you're going to be hiring guys, not transferring in, but brand new people coming on. What is it that you look for? Is it... Is it very different than it was five, ten years ago? Uh, it's really not. It's one of the hardest things that we've had to do. We've had openings at the Haverhill Police Department for the last 16 years running. Every year. Right now, I'm down 12 officers, and we're in the process now. Why is that, if you don't mind me interrupting you? What, how is it that— I don't believe the job is as glamorous as it was in the past. People are not really kicking down the doors. It's also um, some of the departments— Benefits are better, wages are better, so obviously they're going to go where mm -hmm. where it's more lucrative for them. So it's made it a little more difficult to hire people. Uh, you know, one of the issues we have is when we're looking at people, we have to look at you know what kind of life experience are they bringing, uh, what does their their job references look like, um, what are their neighbors. We even actually do neighborhood checks. We knock on your neighbor's doors and ask them about you. Mm -hmm. um, so we we do a pretty extensive background check. We look at your driving history, uh, we look at your criminal history. So it's it's a it's a pretty pretty long process for us to go through. Um, then we do an interview. Usually, it's with myself and either the deputy chief or one of the captains, where we bring you in for an oral. Um, I would call it a uh, oral interview, not an oral board. It's an oral interview where we kind of want to get to know you and kind of think about uh, you know why you want to come in the job and and what is your views and ideas on things that involve uh, you know ethical issues and moral issues and things of that matter to mm -hmm. kind of see if you have the right head for the job are you a compassionate person you know do you understand that we're looking more for guardians than warrior mentality people now and this job has totally changed um we, well, you guys have become social workers now i mean you're not kidding guys that are that absolutely are, that, are, that have od'd you're as a you're, matter of fact we've had to double the doses of Narcan we carry in the cars because one in two doses doesn't do it anymore. Sometimes we're doing three and four doses. You know, can we talk about that a little bit? Because I was talking to Chief Solomon about that uh, uh, probably a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago. My time's always off. Um, and he said that one of the problems that they're running into is people that have been narcan a number of times in the past, it's not working anymore. Their bodies are starting to become immune to the Narcan. And he said he's got guys that, that have narcan someone four and five times before they come back. Oh yeah, we've done we've done three and four, so that's why we've had to double our our dosages in the vehicles. Um, you know, and and people are some of the departments are showing that maybe the numbers are down a little bit, and I would kind of challenge that because what's happening now is is that they're narcanning themselves. They're in groups and they narcan themselves, and then they're not calling us. Right. That's going to impact your numbers. Right. So, right. I don't know that things are necessarily getting better yet. I mean, we're, we're starting to move in the direction as far as um, sending out teams of officers and, and clinicians to talk to not only the, uh, the, the addicts, but to also talk to their families and see if we can get them into rehab programs to kind of help them. That's the hardest thing. I do a lot of outreach in Lawrence with some of the uh, addicts. 
And you know, we we worked. I shouldn't say we. There was a bunch of people that that worked, and I just kind of helped a little bit on the side. But a bunch of people that worked to get this couple in, and it took them two weeks to get them to agree to go into to rehab. They were there two days, and they signed themselves out. And what, one of the things that we're seeing is that if they're not ready, if they're not approaching us and saying, I want rehab, if they haven't made their own determination on their own and you have to convince them, it's never going to work. Got to be rock bottom. Yeah. Yeah, that's really sad. We have two and three, four times that go into, into the rehab programs. And some of these programs are thousands of dollars. It yeah. costs you thirty, thirty-five thousand a month. And a lot of it's not covered by insurance. Right. So what, 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 what chance does somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, someone who might be homeless, Someone who maybe they've got a job, but they're not making a lot of money. What chance do they have to go get clean if, if all of these rehab places are so damn expensive? If they come to us, um, we have the ability to get beds for people that want, truly want help. Uh, we're about to, to join a, a group of departments that is currently doing that, and they're, they're having great success with it, but they have to want to come in. I mean, if we don't turn anybody away, somebody comes to the Haverhill Police Department and says, we have a drug problem, I have a drug problem, we need help, we're getting them help. That's great. Are you working with, um, I know we had Chief uh, Sheriff Coppinger on here about a month or so ago, um, and he's doing some pretty dynamic things. Are you guys working in yes. cooperation with them? How Absolutely. is that working out? They're, they're fine. I mean, he um, pretty much didn't miss a beat when he took over for Sheriff Cousins. I mean, he took over and he, Grabbed those programs and made them better, and he's working hard on them. Uh, we have a great relationship with him. There's a lot of conversation back and forth, and um, what he's doing is really good. I believe he's full capacity all the time. Yeah, I, that, I, that I should would, tell you I something. Bet, I bet. So, now what are your what are your, what are your overdose numbers? I mean, just give us a ballpark if you don't have actual numbers. But I think this uh, year compared to last year, what's it looking like? It, it's it's running about the same. We we run. I believe close to 300 or more overdoses a year. Wow. 20 to 30 deaths a year. Wow. And I think we're pretty much on target again this year for wow. those type of numbers. So even with the Narcan, you're still getting 20 to 30 deaths. Absolutely. And is that that you're not getting them on time or their bodies just become resistant to the Narcan? If you, the problem is if you get a hot load, it's like if you've ever had surgery and you're, you're on the gurney and the anesthesiologist comes up and he says, okay, I'm going to put this in, Tom. I'm going to put the, anesthesia in count backwards from 10 i don't know i never get to nine right and i don't know of anybody that gets to eight or seven so it's the same thing with with this type of drug if you ingest if you shoot yourself up and it's it's a hot load of heroin um before you can get to nine you're dead your heart is stopped there there's no narcan's not going to work narcan works while you're while your breathing is labored so Mm -hmm. that's part of the problem it's not necessarily that they've become immune to the narcan depending upon the strength of the heroin that they're using, whether it has fentanyl or carfentanil or whatever else is in it, mixed with it, it, it can just stop your heart on the spot. No, we're talk- we've talked about the, the, the treatment of people who are using these drugs, but what about those who are supplying it? What's, I see, we, we, we joke about it on this show all the time, we say the political corruption left Lawrence, went to Methuen, the crime left Lawrence and went to Haverhill. Um, what... what what are you guys doing as far as trying to go after these scumbag dealers that are literally killing people almost every day? Um, and I know that it's increasing. I don't know what the numbers are, but I know that it's increasing in Haverhill because I talked to some of your guys and they say that it's getting worse. What we do is we have a – obviously, we have a zero-tolerance policy for this type of stuff. We don't give anybody a break. Um, I have officers that are assigned to – Two federal, actually three, three federal task forces and probably a fourth we've been asked to join. And um, they do the larger scale cases that, that pretty much go nationally where the drugs are coming in and internationally. We also have a, a, the narcotics unit that's um, in the city that works in Haverhill. And they are handling people call in and say, there's a lot of traffic at the house next door to me, or they come in there, they're there for two minutes at a time, and they're going, we have so many of those cases, I could probably use five more narcotics detectives. Wow. I mean, it's that busy, but we, we do them, we prioritize them, we get them done. If we can make a buy, we do the search warrants, we make the arrests. Um, and, and once the arrests are done, it's pretty much up to the judicial system as to how long they keep them. And a lot of times in the past, we would arrest them, they get out, and we would arrest them again. 
Right. And they haven't even been to trial for the first, the first time. One. And that's not uncommon in whether it be Methuen, Lawrence, Haverhill, Lynn, Lowell. That's and is that just that the, that the judges are completely out of touch with what's going on on the streets? Is it overcrowding? Like, what is the reason for... That would probably be a better question for Sheriff Coppinger okay. to ask right. than me because he actually probably has a better insight into how they do that. I mean, we really don't... In the police side of it, we don't really get to sit across from a judge and kind of grill them on, on how right. they do things or why they do them. You right. know, they always have that contempt of court that they can slap sure. you with. So we sure. have to be very careful how we approach our judges. Gotcha. So well, let me, let me uh, tackle a, an uncomfortable subject for both of us because I think we're on opposite sides of it. It's really been a pet peeve of mine, and I've, I've, uh, I've tried really, really hard to wrap my head around it. But, I, you know, I drive around Lawrence. I go live on Facebook, and we chase calls. I can't do that in Haverhill. Haverhill's the only department in New England, at least that I know of, and we've checked, that has scrambled their public channel, their public scanner channel, for just regular radio calls. And I'm not talking about undercover missions or right. narcotic stuff. And it seems to me like it flies in the face of transparency in government because then when your mayor, a politician, mm -hmm. comes out and says, well, crime is down or crime is up, we have no way to verify that. When the chief in Lawrence says crime is down or up or the mayor in Lawrence says crime is down or up, we know if that's true or not because we drive through the streets and we follow the scanner calls and we see whether the crime is up or down. In Haver, we can't do that. So I guess my two questions are, how the hell do you get away with that? And B, why would you want to do that? Okay. And you know, I still love you, this, but... I know. This is a multiple answer question. All right. So the first gonna thing I'm going to tell you, as a good investigator, as a journalist, and a finder of fact and truth, the first thing you need to do is you come down or you have them email you or whatever, the crime log that goes out every day that every department has to do, mm -hmm. which is our crime log. Now... You might say, okay, well, that might just have stuff you did a report on. And you're right. So then you're going to want to pull the CAD calls that every department has. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be able to see every single time a mic or radio was keyed, where they went and why they went there, which is big. I mean, if mm -hmm. you have somebody to do that, you can actually sit down and look over three months, six months, year, and you can take a look and see and com compare year to date and that type of thing as to what's going on. As far as the radios... We decided to encrypt the radios. First of all, Methuen has an encrypted radio. North Andover is encrypting. Andover is going to encrypt. We've been, already been contacted by them, and they're in the process of well, doing no, this. Well, nobody has encrypted yet their regular radio calls, because well, we still they're follow getting, in. I understand that. Andover. They're in the process of changing. You see, everybody's radio system, they were told by Motorola that the systems are now obsolete. Haverhill is in the process of putting in a $1.7 million system. Lawrence is doing the same thing, so I don't know if they're going to stay non-encrypted and over everybody's had to change because they're not making the parts we all have etzels now right. and we can't get parts for them so everybody's had to upgrade and it'll all be done probably in the next year to 18 months so well i guess why encrypt it why conceal from I'll the public you, the regular radio calls? after my officers started going to calls search warrants drug calls domestic violence calls um gang locations and they were scanners and they knew when our officers were coming and when they would be there. It became enough of a safety concern, at least for me in Haverhill, that the safety of my officers to me was, was a priority, was paramount. And that was why we decided to encrypt the radio. Can I just push back on that just Absolutely. a little bit? Absolutely. I'm 51 years old. I remember being five and listening to my grand and watching my grandfather sit there listening to his scanner at night. And criminals back then were using scanners. Right. Um, I mean, that's, that's something that has existed forever. We where didn't criminals... have encryption when your grandfather was listening to radio. Right. That's... But what I'm saying is it, this is this, the, the, the concept of allowing the public to see what their public safety officials are doing and hearing it for themselves has been tremendous value. It also allows the public to understand what you guys do every day a little bit more. I mean, there's a lot of hatred for cops out there. Absolutely. I think if they listen to a scanner for an hour, they might not hate you guys so much. Uh, I don't know if that's I, I, you may be right I don't know um, I do know that what a lot of people do now is they listen to the fire channel because if there's a shooting or a robbery or a rape or something with an injury fire is not encrypted right and we and don't emails, yeah. and we don't tell them to encrypt and we don't tell them to use a secret code that you wouldn't but know. where does it stop you guys start encrypting the next thing you know the fire is encrypting and now the fire will never encrypt no, never? Never. You know why? 
No. Because everything they do is mutual aid. I mean, when there's a when there's a two three alarm, what do they do when they're bringing in other trucks and they all have to talk? Right. So they they're not going to encrypt. So you don't see it as a as a. Um I see it as a hindrance to the media. I would certainly guess. certainly it hurts me with my job for I, sure. I understand that, but I also like I'd love it. to drive around Haverhill. I, all the stories I hear about Haverhill, I get I go to that Haverhill four one one page on Facebook, and they're always posting stuff that's going on. I'd love to drive around Haverhill and do what I do in Lawrence, but I can't. Well, absolutely, you can. I can, of course. Okay. Would you like to know how? Uh, sure. You want to come out on a Friday or Saturday night and get in one of my cars in one of the hot zones? We'll be happy to take you out, and you can drive around and see what it's like firsthand. Yeah, but I can't smoke in a police car. I'd rather drive <laughs> around in my car with a scanner where I can smoke, and I can just follow you guys around. That but would be better. Look at how much healthier you're going to be for the two, three, four yeah, hours. Yeah, I, listen, I don't plan on living all that long anyway. But so, so what about having, a mem- having the press, uh, or at least members of the press, have access to that? Uh, whereas um, to what have a have a police scanner yeah, to have a police, a police scanner to be able to listen to it so that we can at least go to the calls and and maybe not go live before we get there so that the, the criminals don't know we're coming. Uh, what I used to do on Facebook before we evolved into what we do now is I used to go to the scene of a shooting and then go live, and then a friend of mine said, "Hey, why don't you just go live all the time while you're driving around in Lawrence? Peep the suspense of people hearing the call and having you go there, which made it a lot more fun. We don't have to do it that way though." Right. I'd be perfectly happy if I could have a scanner or at least have the media get some kind of an exemption, uh, you know, that we would sign and say we won't go live till we get to the scene or whatever, and at least be able to go to a scene and be able to, to broadcast what's happening live. Otherwise, we have to depend on the idiots on Facebook. And right. some of them are great. The Hammer 401 page is great, but there's some that aren't. Right. And some of them are morons, and they put stuff up that, that's a lot not of even stuff, close to true. A lot of stuff they report happened a year ago, right. six months ago. Right. You know, I'll get a call from the mayor's office. Did we just have another shooting at this location? No, that was six months ago. Right. Or, or was there another pedestrian accident? No, that was... Right. So you're right. Sometimes it does get that way. But I, I will tell you this. If I remember correctly... You're in existence, the Valley Patriot. You're in existence because of your dissatisfaction with the media yes. and the way they report. Yes. Which brings me to, again, for me to do a blank opening of everything <laughs> right. to you're, everybody. You're giving, you're giving the Tribune, right? So, I, I mean. <laughs> hey, look, it's a good point. Touche. <laughs> Right, I got gotcha. you. I don't need to elaborate anymore, do I? No, I don't think you do. <laughs> All right, do we have to take a quick break there, Ed Sullivan, our fine, fine uh, producer today? I think that would be great. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to the chief about the police station situation. We covered a story about mold and leaking roofs and, uh, and a construction company that didn't fix the station right. We're going to talk about that. We also want to talk about some of the gang activity going on in Haverhill, uh, what their crime numbers are, if he knows them, at least give us some ballpark stuff. And, uh, and if you have any questions, I'll bounce up over here on Facebook, and we'll see if you guys have any questions for uh, Haverhill Chief, uh, Police Chief Alan DeNaro, who was on our, our maiden show, our very first show, December 29th, and he is back now here in September, and we're glad to have him back. He's one of the, one of the best chiefs in the uh, Merrimack Valley. He's still my second favorite chief. That's okay. <laughs> A&M Auto Body. We got our friend Angelo over there. Angelo Memolo over there. He does great work on your car. So if you got a ding in your car, somebody hit you, you got a mechanical problem, you bring it to A&M Auto. He's on South Broadway in Lawrence on Inman Street. Angelo will take care of you. Um, so what's the address there? 341 Three, South Broadway, Lawrence, Massachusetts. Then we got Joe Zingales, Rosanna Zingales Lopez from Century 21. They have been with us from the very first edition of the Valley Patriot. They've been with us from the very first Paying Attention show which was in 1999, back when he was Remax. He's not Remax anymore. Now he's Century 21, Teams and Gallus. And they sponsor our bash. They gave a $1,000 scholarship this year. They gave a $2,000 scholarship last year. And that money comes right out of their pocket. That's not like they're collecting money from other people and just using it like I do. They actually took money out of their pocket. So I don't know why these guys love me so much. I really don't. But Twin Lights, let me tell you how, how dedicated I am to helping my sponsors. The guys at Twin Lights Security needed an extra security guy to do private investigations and to do security for a certain thing in Boston. And they posted it on my page and asked if it was okay if they could use my page to solicit hiring people. And I said, you know what? As busy as I am, these guys sponsor the show. They sponsor the Valley Patriot. They give us $1,000 for the bash. I'm going to go work for these guys. 
So I called up Pat McLaughlin and I said, look, you help us every single time we need something. Whenever I put out a call, you're there. If you need an extra person and you're short, I'll take the night off and I'll come work for you. And so I, ha- so I have been. I've been doing some work for them because they're helping us. And so there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to find a way to help them in the meantime. So if you need security or if you're getting divorced and you need a private investigator, if you have a business and you need a private investigator or security, uh, you want to call Twin Lights Security. They're based out of Gloucester, but they're very local. If while I'm driving around Lawrence, I get shot and killed, make sure you get my body to Perez Funeral Home because we do business with the people who do business with us. And he's on South Broadway. With the, it's the old Scott Funeral Home. If, you were, if you're an old-time Lawrence resident, it's the old Scott Funeral Home on, on South Broadway. Perez Funeral Home at 298 South Broadway in Lawrence. Um, you can, they do crematory services. They do all the stuff that they're supposed to do, right? And uh, Mike's a, a big fan of the show. He followed us when we go live. He's an advertiser now in the print edition of the paper. And he's now sponsoring this program. Perez Funeral Home and Crematory Services, 298 South Broadway in Lawrence. We appreciate him. Franklin Veloz from Veloz Auto Group. Uh, he specializes in people that have uh, maybe bad credit, no credit. Maybe you haven't had a job for a long period of time, so you don't think that maybe you qualify for a car loan. Usually, you know, they want you to have a job for a year or more. Uh, he specializes in getting people who have bad credit or no credit or maybe spotty credit, uh, getting them into a used car. He used to work for Charlie Dare's Commonwealth Motors for a long, long time, so he knows his stuff. I think he was a credit manager over there or something. So he knows what he's doing, and, um, and he follows us live, too. I really appreciate that he does. Every time I see him pop on, I'm very excited about it. And I was there yesterday to deliver his newspaper, and he said he's already had customers come in from us talking about him on this show. So we appreciate Veloz Auto Group. Go see Franklin. He's at 17 Mass Ave. It's right at the very beginning of Mass Ave on the Lawrence North Andover line. We got, and then we got and then we got threatened for publishing the video. Alrighty, we are back here on the Paying Attention Podcast. High atop the Two Guys Smoke Shop in Salem, New Hampshire at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. I want to thank Dave Garafalo uh, for allowing us to do this every uh, every week here. And we also want to thank Tom and Nancy Troy from Political TNT. Boy, they're they're firecrackers. I love watching this show. Go on YouTube or go on their Facebook page and check out their show. It is really one of the most entertaining shows. Like even, even on TV, you don't find shows that entertaining. Their brother and sister, they just yell at each other for an hour. It's hysterical. It's like watching people sitting at the, t- at the kitchen table arguing about stuff, like watching a family argue about stuff at the kitchen table. And, uh, and, and they just literally just yell at each other for, for an entire hour. I call each other names and everything. It's great stuff. Uh, so we want to thank Tom and Nancy Trey. We want to give them a free plug. They're pretty awesome. Sitting in the studio with us today here at Studio 21 Podcast Cafe is a guy that I happen to like an awful lot. And you guys know me. I don't like people. Um, but I do like Alan Denaro. I think he's a professional. I think he's a good guy. Um, and, and I also, one of the reasons that I like him is I respect honesty and I respect people that are forthright and that don't talk around the question. When you ask them a question, they just answer it. And so I'm going to throw a tough question at you. Let's see how good you are now that I built you up. I just have to say one thing. Sure. So you said you don't like people. In general, yeah, I hate people. Does that mean you're not taking any applications for friends? No, no, no. I don't want any more friends. Just check. I don't want any more friends. I don't need any friends. Any people say, listen, I want to be your friend. No, I don't want it. Please, I don't need any more friends. Just say application periods closed. Right, yeah. That's all you have to say. Right. No more interviews. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, right. That's true. If you're a redhead, that might change things if you're a female. So um, so we, we've got this national movement now of sanctuary cities where cities are deciding that they're not going to allow their police departments to work with Homeland Security or the federal government when they arrest somebody who's an illegal alien that's committed a violent felony. And what really bothers me about this whole topic is that politicians who support sanctuary cities because they love letting illegal aliens stay here for whatever their political reasons try to lie about what it is. And when your new state rep, what is his your new state rep's name? Uh, 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 he's a Dominican oh, kid. Nice oh, you're kid. talking about Andy Vargas. And Andy, when Andy Vargas was running, he went on social media and he warned the public that ICE was coming. Very irresponsible. And, and we do disagree on that. Uh, he and I, um, he had reported things that he said happened that we were not able to verify happened. Right. Uh, they wouldn't cooperate with us to get us more information on it. So I was very upset when he did that instead of calling us. So 
That's a topic for another day, I right. guess. But I think what bothers me is that the people who support sanctuary cities make it sound as though, and they put forth the notion that they're for sanctuary cities because they don't want grandmas getting deported for speeding tickets. Right. And we know, and I want you to talk about this a little bit, we know that that's not the case. The fact is, the people being deported are people who are hardened drug dealers, they're gun runners, they're rapists, they're child molesters who are illegally in this country and they've committed some kind of a violent felony. Some of them have been convicted more than once and have gotten out and done more things. Um, what are your thoughts, as, a, as the guy who runs the department and has to deal directly with this every day, what are your thoughts, A, on Sanctuary City? And does it, does it make your job easier? Does it make your job harder? What are your thoughts on all this? Well, we're, we're very fortunate in that we are not a sanctuary city. Not yet. No, we're not a sanctuary city. Not yet, though. There's a movement afoot. Well, I don't, I don't know that. Yeah. Um, but I know that right now we're not. Um, I think it would make it a little more difficult. We, we do not have a big issue or a big problem with that. I mean, maybe if maybe Chelsea or Boston, but we don't have that those significant numbers that it's a problem. They're not ICE is not coming into Haverhill once a week and removing 20, 30 people. Um, very rare do mm-hmm. they come in. And uh, we don't have a problem with it. We're very fortunate in that it has not been an issue for us. It hasn't been something that we've had to battle with. So... When it does happen, how does it work? What's the process? Say you've got a guy that's in Haverhill and he's a uh, you know, convicted child molester or whatever and ICE decides they want to deport him. They decide they want to come in. What is the process? Do they notify you? Do your guys arrest him and then turn him over? Do they do the arrest? They how does usually, it work? Well, they usually will send us, an, 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 for instance, if we happen to arrest him on something else, um, it'll go in the system, they'll see it in the system, and then they'll contact the department, and they'll have to get a hold, a federal hold form, and then we can hold him for them. Uh, you know, usually they'll hold them up to, I think it's 24 hours or 12 hours, and, and then they have to come pick them up, and they will take them. Um, I believe that as far as the sanctuary cities go, I don't, I don't know that they want them necessarily cooperating. Um, most of the chiefs in Massachusetts now... Um, are following the guidelines where we will cooperate. We won't go out if you're just doing roundups. Uh, we will go if, if it's a safety issue and you call us for assistance, we will go there to protect you, not necessarily kick in doors to pull people out of their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it has, um, we will cooperate with them as far as if there is a, a, a federal order for detention for somebody, and we have them. We will notify them that we have them, and then they will come and get them. Um, obviously, we're not going to violate orders from federal judges. That would not be a good thing mm-hmm. to do. Uh, but on the other hand of that, we don't go out. We don't come to your house and ask you whether or not you're uh, you know, in this country legitimately or right. you have naturalization papers or anything else. We, we and, do and not you, do that. And you don't have a problem in Haverhill, I'm assuming. You don't have a problem in Haverhill with... Um, people who are here illegally reporting crimes? Because we hear a lot, well, we have to have sanctuary cities because illegal aliens would be afraid to cooperate with police when they witness a crime or if something's happening in their neighborhood. Do you, do you run into that at all? I, I, we have not. I have not personally had anybody tell me that. Um, I believe that the mayor had told me that he has um, been in some of the neighborhoods and he has heard that concern from some people. I don't know if that's just a minority of the people. Obviously, you're never going to get an answer that's 100% on any side of a question. Mm-hmm. So um, could some people be concerned? I would say maybe they can, but right. is it something that we're seeing that, that a, a large amount of crime being committed and people not reporting it? No, I'm not seeing that right now. All right. We uh, did a story, God, I think it might even be two years ago now, right? Uh, we came into the police station and we toured the station and we took some really harrowing pictures of black mold that your offices have to work in and around every day. I know you've had some offices go out injured because of it, because of lung problems. Um, because when the when the police station was built, it wasn't built correctly, and that there was some shenanigans going on with the way the building was built by the original contractor. It, it, has that been resolved? Because I'm being told that it really hasn't been resolved. Well, where we are right now, if you drive up to the police station, you'll see scaffolding around a building with workers there five, sometimes six days a week. Mm-hmm. We're in the process of replacing, I believe, the last 40 windows in the building. All the windows have been replaced. They've pulled down probably 35 to 40% of the brick on the building, which was done improperly. While that's going on, once the windows are sealed, they're going, another team is going inside the building, literally ripping the walls out, sanitizing, 
rebuilding and repainting the walls. Right now, we're probably at about 70% complete. So the, Have they done all the, the black mold mitigation has been done. Okay. The roof, the roof was replaced. We're having right. issues with the solar. With that has caused some leaking in the building, but I mm-hmm. believe that we're working on correcting those problems. So right now, the mold is done. The inside is good. We've replaced carpet. We've replaced the walls. We painted, and they're doing the last probably 30% of the windows. They're anticipating completion of the building by early November. So we're, we're getting close. So I guess my next question is, how did this happen and why hasn't anybody gone to jail? I mean, if, 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 if somebody hires me to mow their lawn and they pay me, and I don't mow their lawn or I mow half their lawn, they could take me to court or maybe they can go to the police and say, he ripped me off. Right. What has happened with this, this contractor that came in and built a police station but didn't do it right? This contractor and the architect, I believe, did two or three stations. And I believe what ended up happening was he went out of business. They just went bankrupt. They shut down. Both of them did. The city had... Obviously, it was low bid back in 97, 98 when this was put together, and they got the low bid guy, and the city had a building committee, which was comprised of a number of people and a captain named Joe Doobie from the police department, and Doobie would go into the meetings, and he would complain, they're doing the roof wrong, those are the wrong windows, which they were, they were the wrong windows, the wrong size, they're not going to code, they're not doing this, so the mayor removed him from the committee. Wow. The and current then, mayor? Or? No, this was, uh, I believe it was Mayor Rorak, I'm okay. told, removed him from the committee. Now, I wasn't here, so I can only tell you what I've been told. I have not talked to Mayor Rorak about it. Um, I don't know what the issue was, why they removed him. I believe uh, Chief Barone, Lenny Barone, was the chief at the time. He was removed. Come to find out that he was right about everything. What they did was they cut the wrong size holes so that the proper commercial grade windows they bought for the building didn't fit. So they had to take them back and go to like a Home Depot type of place and just get off the shelf windows. Wow. And they ended up putting pieces of block in. They weren't flashed properly. They were tilted wrong. So when it would rain, the water would come in the buildings. The the building was a mess. I mean, we've spent now over $2 million just on windows. And there's no way, even though this guy went out of business, there's no way you can go after this guy? There's no way? Well, the, the mayor had the city solicitor look into it, and um, I don't believe there's anybody at this point because it's so long ago. Wow. Wow. Now, we just lived through the anniversary of 9-11. Yes. And I know that this touches every, – every law enforcement officer I talk to that, that I bring this up to um, has a story. Uh, even though we're – we're like 17 years away, 17 years after 9-11. Uh, it, it seems as though our culture has gone back to a 9-10 mentality. If you remember back to 9-10, the day before 9-11, the big news stories of the day were Gary Condit and Chandra Levy and, and uh, you know, Hollywood stars drinking and driving and Charlie Sheen. And we were being distracted by all these things that really had nothing to do with anything. And we weren't paying attention to the fact that there were millions of Muslims out there trying to kill us. And here we are 17 years later, and it seems like we've forgotten all of that. Haverhill hasn't, though. You guys have a memorial there. You guys do a service every year. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, we do. Um, The fire chief took it over this past year for the first time. We did it at the fire station. Uh, They ring out the bells, which is very symbolic as to the number of uh, officers and firefighters that died and the times of day that the first tower was hit and the second tower was hit. they, they, the firemen do a great job with that. Um, they uh, they lost the most of mm-hmm. anybody. I mean, they're still losing people today. Yeah. Um, the neighborhood I grew up in in New York um, had the most police and firemen. They had a funeral almost every week for two years. It, wow. it was crazy. I mean, they would go down the street, and uh, you know, it was a it was very touching. It was a very horrible event. Um, How do we get people back to a nine twelve mentality where the day after everybody kind of looked around and said? Why weren't we paying attention to this? Why were we so drunk on all of these other stupid stories, these distraction stories about Lindsay Lohan and, and you know, all, the, all these other stupid interpolitical palace intrigue of the White House? How do we get back to getting people to understand that the threat is still there and that there's a, it's a long-term threat against our way of life? Right. You know, they, they're on a 100-year plan to destroy us, and we're only thinking about the next election. Like, I mean, we, we problem, have ADD. The problem we have, it's like anything else. You could be mad at your friend um, and 
five or ten years goes by and you might not even remember why you were mad at him or it doesn't seem as pointed as it was. So uh, I think that could have a lot to do with it. It's been 16, 17 years now since this happened. And I think that, you know, maybe people have just kind of got, you know, a little desensitized because nothing has happened recently. Um, You know, I honestly don't know how we get people back to the point. I will say on the positive side is that the federal government, a lot of your largest cities, state and local, um, you know, we have fusion centers. Uh, we're constantly looking at intelligence. We're trying to figure out what is going on to stop the next thing from happening. Um, you know, I just went to um, last December. I think Solomon goes this December to Israel. We went to Israel and we met with the military experts there who basically sleep with one eye open mm-hmm. since they were formed as a state. And they've kind of showed us. We well, actually, they have to. I mean, their enemy is right at the door. We, I mean, we went into the prison. We went into Offer Prison, which uh, I believe is uh, Hamas and the uh, PLO. And they keep them separate because they don't like each other. And uh, Let's you just know, put them all together and let them kill each other off. You know, they explain to us, you know, you know, when we asked them. I asked them, I said, you know, you guys are terrorists. Isn't there another way to do this? And they'll look you right in the eye and say, we're freedom fighters. We're yeah. not terrorists. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a mentality. So you're right on one point. They're not going to stop. You know, we went there thinking, oh, we'll, we'll solve this conflict right. going on in the Middle East. Yeah, we can fix it by talking to them. We'll, we'll teach them, you know, how well, to be a better person. Well, by the time the 20 of us left, we realized that this is it's a lot more complicated right. and, and ingrained, uh, you know, than, than it's going to be an easy fix. Mm-hmm. So I think at this point, it's a matter of we need to make sure that we're prepared as a nation uh, that – you know, we can keep our people safe. Is there a disaster country. relief plan if, if a national security, like people don't think of Haverhill or Lawrence, you know, that the terrorists are going to come here. But they are here. And and a lot of communities have like a disaster relief plan in case since well, Tom, 9-11 it's just happened. Like, it's just like what happened in the three cities. Mm-hmm. That could have been done by a terrorist. Right. You know, they could have done something to blow up the gas lines. Sure. We would have been handled the same way. We would shut down the areas. We would open up the shelters. We would take care of the sick or the injured, you know, put out the fires. Same type of plan, mm-hmm. just just a different cause or right. reason for it starting. But same thing. That could have been – it wasn't, but it could have been done by, a you know, a subversive sure. group. I think what bothers me the most about what happened in Lawrence with the gas explosion is the, ex- the excuse that we got or the reason that we got – that it happened was that a guy, one guy, made a mistake by hooking a high-pressure line to a low-pressure line, which caused all this devastation. And my first thought was, well, if one guy can make a mistake with no backup systems at all to do that, then what's to stop a, a terrorist from getting a job at any gas company in the country Correct. and purposely causing even way more damage, which is why their which is why their answer I'm hoping isn't true. I'm hoping that they're lying. Because if what they're saying is true, we're in a lot more trouble than we think. I mean, what I don't understand, and I, I don't work for the gas companies, but I was under the impression that there was supposed to be safety mechanisms, check valves, both on the, the larger transmission lines and then check valves for each individual home that are supposed to prevent these type of things from happening. So mm-hmm. I don't know why those check valves, if they are in fact there, failed. I mean, those are questions that have to be answered. It's more complicated than one guy went to transmission line A instead of B. Right. I think it's much more complicated, and hopefully that's why the NTSB is here. They can kind of figure that out. I hope so. We've got about uh, a little bit more than 10 minutes left, so um, I want to give people an overview of what your department is and what it's like. How many cops do you have overall, and then how many patrolmen versus supervisors? I know we're hearing a lot in Methuen about their supervisors, what they're getting paid, that they're too top-heavy and all of that. You hear that in every every community thinks that their police department's top-heavy. What is it like in, in Haverhill? How many how many cops overall? And then just kind of give me a breakdown. My budget, Ballpark figures, if you're not exact. My budget is 107 sworn. That would include myself and the deputy chief. I right now have 95 as a result of an officer left to go to Salem, New Hampshire last week. Another officer retired the end of this week. So that makes, picks me down to 95 on 12 short. I have 21 superior officers. I believe Methuen has 24. Um, I have, and the rest are, are patrol officers. The And those patrol officers are segmented into places like traffic, narcotics, um, we have a gang unit now, criminal investigations, detective bureau, 
uh, road patrol. I have a community relations officer who still um, coordinates those activities for us. And that's pretty much where we have our officers assigned. How important is it to have the specialty units? Um, I know Lawrence just, uh, just, they're starting up their canine unit again. They never had, they, they haven't had it in a long time. The, uh, the car theft task force was done away with under Willie Lantique, but now they're bringing it back. How important, can you explain to the public how important it is, not just to have the regular rank and file patrolman driving, driving around the city, answering calls of domestics, but to have these specialty uh, units that are going out and handling specific issues? I would say it's, it's huge. And if you ever get the chance to talk to the, the chief of police in Lynn, he can tell you better than anybody. His department is probably down 40 or 50 guys. Wow. They've eliminated pretty much their narcotics unit, their detective bureau. It's down to one or two guys in each of those units. There's no more traffic unit. The state police are assisting quite a bit. He can tell you better than anybody what it's like to go from having all of those units to having none of those units and just being able to field cars. Mm-hmm. Um, patrol's the backbone of any department. I mean... Nothing will upset the public more than calling 911 and having to wait for an officer to come. So that's the first thing we have to do. The secondary part is nothing will upset the public more than if they're the victims of a crime and you can't investigate it for them or you can't bring it through to arrest. It'll also upset them if there are things that happen in their neighborhood, whether it be prostitution, drugs, um, gangs, unruly kids that just are disturbing their quality of life that you can't dedicate people to handle. I mean, it's, you can't just, it's not like on TV. We can't solve problems in 60 minutes. You know, right. everybody gets used to watching NCIS and it's all solved in 60 minutes right. and they move on to the next case. Right. That's not how it works. So you have to be able to assign people and say, you know what? Stay on this. Work this. I mean, we, I, I don't know if you reported on it, but they, we arrested two, um, Two of the city workers for buying drugs, mm-hmm. highway workers. And, um, you know, we'd gotten reports on it. The mayor had gotten reports. And uh, I said, you know what? This is what we're going to do. We're going to assign two detectives. And they're going to work this thing from 7 in the morning until the end of the day, every day, until we find out is it true or not. Mm-hmm. And they were on it almost two weeks. And they finally were able to go ahead and, and make an arrest on it. But that required me to significantly commit manpower and resources sure. to do that. And they were selling, I don't have they were selling, units, they were selling drugs on duty while they were buying. They were buying. They weren't selling. No, they were not selling. I see. So, I mean, it requires you to have those resources to commit. If you don't have them, if you can't solve problems, everybody has problems. But, you know, if you can't bring solutions to the table, you're, you're going to lose the public. I mean, people want to see results. It's like anything else. Uh, different police chiefs have different philosophies on guns. Um, if you try to get a gun they're in... They're dangerous. That's my philosophy. Oh, you, you guns are dangerous. dangerous? Really? Yes. Okay. In the wrong hands, they're very sure. dangerous. So some chiefs, like the chief in Lowell, it's very difficult to get a gun. He's very anti-gun uh, from everything that we've heard. Then there are other chiefs like North Andover where it's maybe a little easier to get a gun because they're not anti-gun. They'll just do a basic background check, whatever they're required to do. But they're not looking to restrict it. And then there's places like Lawrence where it's kind of in, in the middle where... I don't even handle the guns. I have a captain. My detective captain is in charge of firearms licensing and he has two detectives that work for him. We follow the state guidelines. They fill out the application. Uh, we look at their criminal history. If there's something in the history that the state law says you're not permitted to have a firearm, we recommend you go see a judge. You might have been arrested when you were 18 for something that would prevent you from getting it, and you've been a model person, and you're now you're 45, and really, I can't have a gun? Well, we can't give it to you according to the law, but a judge can. So we will tell them, go petition, go see a judge, and yep. most of the time, if the judge thinks it's reasonable, he'll let them have the weapon. Um, we, we just follow the state guidelines. Because some, some departments have additional requirements. We don't. You don't. Excellent. Well, that, that's a great answer. I was expecting a longer answer, but that was a great answer. I believe in brevity, if possible. How, how prevalent is it? We've got six minutes left. How prevalent is politics to hindering you in your job? We hear a lot, and I hear a lot about um, politicians at city council meetings making comments, and then you get up there and basically, excuse my French, kick, kick their ass with actual numbers. Um, how, how does that hinder you doing your job and your officers doing their job when there's political interference like that? As far as our city council is concerned, I have a really good relationship with them. Whereas if they have a question or a concern, they'll either call me, come in to see me or email me. 
Um, so I usually don't get any interference from them, and they, they, they take my suggestions to heart, and a lot of times they will act upon them. So, I mean, I couldn't ask for a better relationship than I have currently with my city council. I don't have any problems as far as um, interference from them or hindrance them. You know, they wanted to give me more officers than we got in the budget this year. I mean, so it's not like I have to petition them for things like that. Uh, they, they, they seem to be very cooperative. They understand that we have unique needs in Haverhill and that we're playing catch up from years past from problems as far as financial issues. Mm -hmm. So they've been, they've been very receptive to saying, we understand you need things. Tell us what you need and we'll figure out how to do it. And that's a great, refreshing way to have to deal with the council. Well, it's great that you said great things about the council on that. But uh, what about the mayor? We hear it's not so rosy. Well, the mayor, I mean, obviously the mayor has a whole different perspective on things, you know, um, and, and he has to kind of balance out, well, I know the cops need something, but then the firemen need it. And I only got nine guys at the highway department. I used to have 30. So he has to look at it a little differently. And depending upon what is going on at that time will impact the mayor. The last two or three years in the budget, um, the mayor has added, uh, I believe I've added a sergeant, two sergeants and a lieutenant which has been very big. Mm -hmm. um, we've also added a couple of patrolmen. When I came here in 2002, I had a staff of 95, and that included myself and the deputy at the time. So right now we're up to 107. So in 16 years, we've added 12. Not great. But you're down 12, though. I'm down 12. Okay. So I'm at that 95 you're number. But I have permission from the mayor to hire them just a matter of getting them through the process. And how expensive is it to hire a cop? Because I talked to guys that, that do that in Lawrence and Methuen, and they say, like, for every five guys that we hire, only two of them last all the way through the academy and the probation period and everything else. Right. I mean, I would say we probably reject 70 to 80% of the candidates for various reasons mm -hmm. from their backgrounds. Um, and then it's a matter of, you know, take an investigator sometimes two weeks to do the background investigation, and then they have to send them for a psychological that costs several hundred dollars, and then physical agility, and then uniforms. Then they will get a salary for six months in a police academy. So it's an expensive process to go through. If I hired you today, it would be 12 months before I saw you in uniform in a car on the road. It just takes and that's that if I long. made it because a lot that's of people they don't make, make it. they don't right. make it through the academy. We've had some, right? We've period. had some that have washed out in the academy. So was Lawrence. Yep. So was Methuen. I mean, it just depends. Mm -hmm. But if they make it through, it, it's a process. How many civilians do you have? Uh, I know we're up against uh, against time, Ed. Uh, how many civilians do you have in the department, and what are, what are their basic functions? Is it I mostly have, admin, or is it other stuff? Well, I have three um, three young ladies that work in the records division that do a, a lot of things with our freedom of information and with the reports and, and handling the public's issues. I also have four civilian dispatchers, which the mayor just signed a new contract with the patrolman, allowing him to completely civilianize my police dispatch, which means I can put those police officers back on the road. So I'm working with him right now to determine... We don't have funding to do that. Right. So hopefully we can put funding in this year and start that hiring process. I, you know, I also have an administrative assistant. I have a domestic violence coordinator. Those are both civilians. I have two animal control officers who are, they're not sworn officers. They're, they're civilian employees, uh, maintenance people in the building. I have a, a mechanic that handles our police fleet and the animal control fleet. So uh, that's pretty much my staff of civilians. That's great. Uh, we've got about a minute left. Uh, do you have any final thoughts for, for us? We appreciate you coming back. You were on our first show, and we really appreciated that a lot because that was a great panel discussion with four chiefs. Um, do you have any final thoughts for, for people at home that are, that, are, um, that are watching about the Haverhill Police Department or Haverhill in general or crime in general in Haverhill? I, I, will, I will say this. Um, I, I'm going to do something for you that is unsolicited. Um, I think that people should support your paper. I think that you bring a different perspective, a different view to reporting the news than we traditionally get. And I think that that's important that we have that and that we keep uh, journalism people that are doing it like you and your paper alive. So I'm hoping that the business community will get behind you and support you because you're providing an important service the way well, that you. you do your job. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do appreciate that. Alan DeNaro, Chief of Haverhill, you'll come back. Absolutely. Love to have you back again at some point. 
Uh, maybe we'll do another panel discussion at some point. Uh, thank you to uh, Ed Sullivan, our, our voice of purgatory over there. You're He's been kind of quiet today, but we're glad to have you. Cartoon guy is here, and of course, Rich Russell. We had political TNT, Tom and Nancy Troy at the uh, beginning of the show, and Dave Garofalo. Uh, thank you to all of our sponsors and our advertisers. I want to thank Debo Brown and Kelly for what they did helping people out during the fire. Joe Zingales at Team Zingales. Uh, the Labor's Union Local 175, Carrie at House of Mercy, and everybody at House of Mercy doing such an amazing job. Uh, the volunteers at the Senior Center, uh, the volunteers at the Elks, the Elks Club uh, allowed uh, all the first responders and all of the organizations to use the Elks Club for the last two days to service uh, those, those victims of the, uh, the gas leak, the gas fires in Lawrence. We will see you next week. Melvin Taylor says we got to go home, so go home already. And as Ronnie Ford would say, we wish you enough. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, or callers of this program do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe, the United Podcast Network, its partners or affiliates.